This is another iRaw podcast. I can't even continue to say property subjects because when you're property, the law doesn't recognize you as a legal subject. You have to be a person to be seen as a legal subject. The idea of personhood has come up several times in season one, and I'm thrilled to say that Manisha Decker, who is Professor and Lansdowne Chair in Law at the University of Victoria, will be joining me in this episode to discuss the idea of personhood. She'll also be talking about the idea of legal beings, which she introduces in her forthcoming book, Animals as Legal Beings, Contesting Anthropocentric Legal Orders. Manisha has a wide variety of research interests, including critical animal studies, animal law and legalities, post-colonial feminist theory and reproductive law. Manish has also been a Fulbright Visiting Chair in Law and Society at New York University and is Director of the Animal Studies Research Initiative at the University of Victoria. So thank you again for making yourself available. Um, yeah. And perhaps I can hand over to you. Could you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in Animal Studies Scholarship? Sure. Um, it was through a personal kind of, um, you know, consciousness uh, awakening as a late teenager, really through um, my elder brother going off to university and coming back with kind of a new perspective and some literature. And I was always very influenced by him. Um, and so I really took that to heart and read the literature. And I was just astonished that uh, this is what was happening um, in the kind of food uh, industry and I never really thought about it. And then, so I kind of had immediate switch to vegetarianism um, overnight. And um, then when myself, I went off to university, then I transitioned uh, almost, I think, I guess immediately to veganism and um, then started exploring um, opportunities as an undergraduate at McGill university to uh, actually write papers in this area at that time, it was the early 1990s, and I um, was learning a lot about deconstruction and just, you know, mm. uh, structuralism and contestation of various binaries and Western epistemologies, and so a lot of feminist theory, too. And so I was always, you know, wondering how come nobody's talking about the human, like, you know, as a social construction, if everything else is a social construction. Yeah. And so I just tried to write my own papers and courses where professors well might I thought might be amenable to this type of topic. And um, I just kept up with that interest through law school. And then when I had a chance really in my final year of law school to um, do uh, more paper-based assessments, I did a large directed reading project with um, Professor Craig Scott, who was then there, um, now at Osgood. And um, yeah, so just always was very important to me. Uh, I always saw animal issues in tandem with other types of oppressions and marginalizations. So mm-hmm. I had a very kind of, you know, what would be now known as an intersectional perspective. And um, I practiced for a little bit, but I was always interested in academia. And um, from the get-go, when I started here at the University of Victoria, my first and only position was here starting in 2002. I knew I wanted to do my kind of specialty seminar in this area. So, um, and then I started writing, uh, in the area and, uh, Amazing. That's how it all, right. that, so you've, you've been at it 
for for a while. Um, you've you've really been thinking through these problems in, in really complex ways. And I've read some of your papers where you talk about uh, intersectionality, and this is increasingly it's, it's quite surprising. Um, when you think about intersectional analysis and how entrenched, I think, ideas of intersectionality are in many uh, studies at the moment, and many areas of scholarship, that the animal, in quotations, has not really been taken on as much. Even now, it still seems to be trying to fight for a seat at the table with intersectional analyses. Do you uh, find that to still be the case? Yes, I would uh, agree with that assessment, um, uh, which is, you know, um, sobering and demoralizing, and but also, I guess, understandable given that the uh, academia, even critically informed spaces, are still so anthropocentric, despite so many indications not to be. Um, definitely, you know, what is known as the animal turn in academia, at least in. Um, uh, North American Europe, uh, as it's called in English, is uh, developing. But yes, it is still an uphill battle, I think, to convince uh, a lot of critical theorists that this is a um, a serious research issue uh, that should compel, you know, urgent attention. Rightfully so. Um, Could you possibly, for those uh, listeners who aren't aware of what intersectionality is, or maybe can't even conceive of how animals uh, or or the the binary between human and animal would form part of such an analysis, could you maybe give us a brief idea of why you think including animals in this line of thought is so important? Sure. Um, So if you trace like the the ways in which the concept of something like race was developed, like how do people talk about this? What was it supposed to mean? You can quickly see, um, and this is like through Western um, kind of traditions of knowledge, you can quickly see that race was indelibly tied to idea of species, right? And um, you don't have to go back too far in history to to see that being like the common sense idea that people of different races actually were people of different species. And so the idea of the animal that we see as an idea of species is very much something that's imbricated in demarcating differences among who we um, what we now consider, or at least I would say most people consider to be humans, right? But historically, the idea of the animal is... Um, a marking point about who is human, who is not, that divided human beings according to race. So even today where we might say, okay, you know, like let's now, we are in a society where we recognize all biological human beings as humans, we are still living with that legacy and we can still understand ideas about animals and ideas of animality to inform what we most of us perceive even in um, critical theoretical circles as being human only issues, uh, whether that's respect to race. So a common example is one that was popularized like in academic circles by um, animal geographers, which show how um, ideas of civilization continue in terms of what is proper, what's a proper way to behave toward an animal, um, pivot on race. So it's, it goes the other way as well. Our kind of our racism or ideas of ethnocentrism also inform our ideas of how we should be relating to animals. 
And we can also see this with gender. And a very quick, perhaps easy way for many people to see this is like, think about all the animals that are in the what we call animal use industries, whether that's the farming industry, um, the research industry, the entertainment industry, you know, how do animals get um, how, how do this? How do animals keep being there? They obviously are living beings that die. Well, they're reproduced, right? And how are they reproduced? It's not through natural reproduction. It's by exploiting the reproductive capacities of the female animals, right? And then uh, coercing like the male animals also. But really, it's the female animals with the reproductive capacities that are are the linchpin of all these systems. And so a gendered analysis in the human realm, we easily see the relevance of something like feminism to thinking about um, critiques of reproductive appropriation for women. But you can make the same critique um, about animals. And further, and here's an intersectional point, the ways in which we talk about those animals in terms of why it's okay to use their bodies that way really correlate with the ways in which we have talked about women um, in terms of appropriating their reproductive capacities for um, instrument instrumentalization and how we still talk about women. So there are parallels, um, definitely, but also tightly woven kind of continuities between these oppressions and that's not to say that there aren't differences. Of course, there are. But that's what intersectionalysis brings, the idea that you can't really understand a gender dynamics of something without thinking of the, the way the concept of the animal functions to this gendering. And the same thing, let's say, with other social forces like um, race or class or ability. So, so how you how you come to understand your race is shaped in and through how you understand your species, or how you come to understand your gender is shaped in and through how you understand species, uh, or are you speaking? Um, I mean, structurally as well. I think what it means to be yeah. a woman, or like reproductive practices as a woman, uh, breastfeeding. Do I use formula? Do I use cow's milk? Uh, there's definitely an entanglement of different reproductive um, practices at play there. Yes, or just to understand, um, like uh, definitely structurally speaking, although it can be also an, 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 uh, a personal like, um, characterization of our own situation. But the point is that structurally, when we look at systems that we would identify systems of violence or systems of marginalization or discrimination or oppression, however we characterize it, it is not just one type of social force that's at issue, right? That's kind of the inside of intersectionality. So it's not just race, it's not class, it's not gender. But then what is left out is species. And what I've talked about and what others have talked about as well is that the idea of the animal, what is what it is to be an animal, what at the idea of animality, of animalization, has been a critical um, concept to create gender distinctions, to create race distinctions, to create distinctions, and to mark out who is human and who is not. So, I mean, we see this play out quite a bit in in colonial literature when you read, for example, about. So, I'm I'm from from South Africa, and I'm reading increasingly about some of Canada's uh, colonial history, and you see in the U.S. as well how the idea of who constitutes as human was very much at play in terms of determining colonial territories uh, and who had claim to or ownership over land use. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, you know, the idea of who is and who is not human has shaped, I think, the civilizations we do live in today, uh, like you mentioned earlier. 
Uh, and I think this takes us nicely into what our focus for today's podcast is, which was on the legal concept of personhood. Now, it's come up in several uh, episodes so far um, as an idea that seems to want to protect animals or is within the rights-based framework. Is is that a correct way of thinking of it? From within the rights? A rights what was the last part? From within the rights space? Yeah, would... would would the idea of personhood be within a human rights a rights based framework? Yes, yes, because person because right now, um, right in uh, uh, legal orders worldwide, almost all legal orders worldwide, animals are conceived of as property, right? And so the um, the systems influenced by British common law uh, have basically two categorizations for all things all people, all types of beings, property or persons. So personhood has evolved as a concept that is seen, yes, to be a deontological concept, a rights-based concept, because it gives you, um, you know, as Ronald Dworkin famously said, a trump card against being treated just as a thing because mm-hmm. you are a rights-bearing entity. What's all around you? almost everywhere you look and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. So if we were to dial back then to what you were saying about some people have not always been considered human and they've straddled that line of human and animal, would it be right to then say that not all people have been considered persons historically? Exactly. Yeah. So personhood... um, it has uh, Roman origins and uh, this idea of, right, like a mask uh, coming to acquire legal um, relevance as kind of um, a shell that for legal status into which um, certain um, beings or entities then are placed and then can claim this legal status. So, yes, in terms of biological human beings, it was a very exclusive concept to a certain cohort, right? Um, privileged by uh, wealth, privileged by gender, um, privileged obviously by just, you know, uh, uh, race and geographic location in terms of who would be recognized. Today, of course, personhood formally has been extended to all uh, those we perceive as biologically human. And um, uh, then the hope in many animal rights communities is for uh, the concept to be further extended to embrace the non-human. Okay. And has, has this been successful at all? Have any animals been incorporated into personhood status anyway? There have been a few judgments um, uh, in um, uh, South America and a few kind of suggestions in India 
of how animals are not property as to how individual animals, usually what we see is the humanized animals like chimpanzees um, being called uh, persons. But has that translated into any wide scale um, acceptance of that concept such that now all animals are not in that jurisdiction are not seen as property and they're seen as persons? No, Uh, it has been very uh, particularized to a certain situation and even where you have like a judgment like coming from the Indian context saying you know animals aren't are not things or um, animals have rights it has it has been um, in my opinion and you know others have articulated this as well just like um, you know a symbolic kind of rhetorical flourish in a in a case where the judge is obviously sympathetic to the plight of animals but again is not overturning centuries of precedent where they're seen as property and is not disturbing any actual material economic relationships that depend on animals being seen as property. So it usually comes out of the context of what is the most common vehicle in um, British uh, ex-colonies and that are influenced by British common law uh, and to cruelty statutes uh, that uh, try to recognize some, this concept called welfare for animals where these concepts uh, might be articulated by judges, but it doesn't disturb what is known as the welfareist regime, wherein animals are property and only really their welfare is attended to when it's not inconvenient to dominant human interests. So there's overwhelmingly all across the world property subjects. And that's actually, a, 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 I can't even, shouldn't even say property subjects because when your property the law doesn't recognize you as a legal subject. You have to be a person to be seen as a legal subject. So when we use the word person, I think, you know, some people might have an ickiness or maybe people outside of the legal realm might feel as though, but people are persons. Uh, uh, A chimpanzee, as close as they are to humans, is not a person because they're not people. Um, People have created, I think, a correlation or conflation of person and human, um, which I think animal rights study scholars are trying to disrupt. Is that is that so? Yes, I would say there is still a very strong correlation, but it's important to recognize right that personhood has is not it legally is not a concept that's just reserved for humans. It's been over two centuries now that personhood has been attributed to corporations, right? More than that. And so, and that was a fight that, you know, scholars have shown that wasn't even a fight, right? It was just, you know, kind of acquiesced to in, in a judgment and then became the norm. So corporations are legal persons. And, and let's think about what is a corporation? Is it something you can feel? No. Is it something you can touch? No. Is there, is there some living being breathing there in the corporation? No, it's a completely abstract conceptualization. Mm-hmm. And that abstract conceptualization is a person. So how do you then um, signify what personhood is? If, if, it's, if all biological humans are included in the category of personhood, but now you've also got corporations that are considered legal persons, what then are, what is used to, to signify or create the boundaries of when something is a person versus property? Yes, that's an excellent question. There's not a stable, unified answer to that. So there's a scholar, um, Nagar Nafin, who has um, done kind of a canvassing in various uh, common law jurisdictions across the world as to how, how do judges talk about this concept of personhood. 
And she's basically identified um, a topology of three different types of meanings that are attributed. And um, one meaning is where personhood is correlated to um, the idea of uh, an empty shell, where it is a pure legal construct, and so that a person is any it could be anything that a judge says it is or that legislators agree to legislate into law. Um, a second correlation in the judgments that she's canvassed is that personhood is correlated with um, a religious idea of the human as divine, as sacred. And a third um, uh, kind of uh, conceptualization is that personhood is um, limited to a certain type of human being, a paradigmatic type of actor. And who is that? It's the a uh, human being who is the ideal rational actor. So an adult um, of uh, sound mind, right, of, of not having any type of cognitive or mental impairment, who is basically um, uh, uh, an economic maximizer. And so the point being that there isn't like, it's just not like we can look up and say, here's the definition of personhood in most jurisdictions. It's it's evolved through the common law method and um, as to you know, having different meanings in different situations. And even in civilian contexts, so colonies influenced by, you know, colonized by the French and then influenced by the civil law, which is much more codified, uh, there's not a clear, stable meaning of what personhood is. And so this so, is the, you know, go ahead. No, no, carry on. <laughs> right. So, so this is kind of the, you know, some would say um, definitely inconsistency, but also uh, other hypocrisy or then others up to more optimistically opportunity to take the existing jurisprudence and apply it toward animals because the existing jurisprudence and, the, and this is the rub of corporations corporations are you know responsible for egregious harms against animals in terms of the industries that they promote and they embody yet they're also the best example of where personhood has been extended to non-humans. Mm -hmm. And so um, legal advocates make much of this fact that if a corporation can be a person, well, there's the precedent that is so important in legal systems, uh, unless legislators, right, unless our politicians get together and pass a bill into law with the majority support that's needed according to the procedures, you have to go to the court system to get the judgment you want, right? And so without okay. the political will to change the system for animals, you have litigation campaigns going to courts to try to advocate on indi for individual animals in individual situations. And a very popular argument, for example, with the is um, um, that personhood is, is available to corporations. It should also be available to animals. If personhood is available to corp, so I understand that from uh, an advocate's perspective, what you're saying is that it's already been extended, so there's no reason to not extend it further, so that animals are given some form of rights under the law, some form of protection that's due to them as beings in and of themselves, as opposed to property of humans. But considering that the idea of personhood seems to be, it has relatively fuzzy edges, uh, and it seems to be fairly malleable in different legal contexts. Do you still think that the concept of pers um, personhood is useful for animal rights advocates and animal studies scholars? Yeah, so this actually is the subject of um, a forthcoming book of mine from the University of Toronto Press called Animals as Legal Beings Contesting Anthropocentric Legal Orders. 
So in this um, book, I make the argument that obviously property is not um, a, a defensible concept, uh, legal status for animals. And, but also I go against the grain uh, that is um, prevalent in most animal uh, law communities and rights communities about personhood. I say personhood, while it's understandable and given the current options, basically between property and personhood, why advocates would want personhood applied to animals rather than have them continue to remain to be property, I um, argue that the concept is not animal friendly. And one of the reasons is what you suggested earlier on. There's a very tight correlation, you know, despite the theoretical availability of, of personhood to non-humans in existing legal uh, precedents, what we call jurisprudence, um, there is still in the minds of the public and even in the minds of judges a very tight correlation between the human and the person. And so that's just but one of the reasons that I argue that personhood is not an animal-friendly concept. And that if we're going to, you know, take the bold step of trying to get animals out of the property category legally, which which would be transformative, right, to mm -hmm. um, entire social order, why go with uh, a concept like personhood that has various problems um, in being animal an animal friendly concept? And I suggest a different concept, which I theorize in the book, is something I call beingness. Mm -hmm. Um, sorry, so you, you said that concept is legal beings. I, I yes, so I call it beingness, and I suggest it's a different type of legal subjectivity than personhood. So basically, the gist of the critique of personhood is that it's still very much molded, imprinted by its uh, exclusive imperial origins, and mm -hmm. so as much as it gets expanded, expanded, you know, it's expanded out to women, it's expanded out to um, children is expanded out to uh, peoples of all different, you know, mental abilities. That it still retains the imprint of its uh, original mold, and that's why we have with us in our legal systems, at least the colonial legal systems, the um, idea of a rational, self-maximizing person. And um, I argue that animal advocates to to have a chance of having a judge, a court, extend personhood to animals, it re requires coming to court with basically a human-like subject to show mm -hmm. that this animal, and it's invariably a chimpanzee or an elephant, right, or an orca, that it's a humanized animal in certain cultures that become the ideal litigants in these spaces. Understandably so, and then the advocates have to go to court to say, look, this animal is just like a human being. So that what personhood does is promote a um, strategy of sameness, right? And then mm -hmm. I don't really see that as anything transformative equality-wise because all we're doing is saying this group is sufficient, this out-group is so much like this in-group, we should let them in, right? But um, it's not really respecting the differences of the out-group or their um, entitlement to be respected as different rather than same to humans or what we see as the paradigmatic human, this rational part. And it might take a long time to achieve that. So if, let's say, you know, chimpanzees tomorrow were to achieve legal personhood and then orcas were and then elephants were, uh, and these are the, the animals where these d discussions are, are happening, 
then I think you're also drawing a variety of inclusions and exclusions as you go. Uh, and at what point would you then get to cows and pigs and, exactly. and chickens? Mm-hmm. Yes, precisely. And that that's the uh, what I mentioned, discussed in the book as well, right? It's so if we think of like magnitude wise, um, what are the animals that are brought into this world by humans and instrumentalized the most in terms of numbers? It's the farmed animals and it's the, uh, the farmed animals on land and the animals in the oceans that are used for um, eventually coming into human consumption for diet. And um, th- these are feminized animals, right? They, they're, they're not the humanized animals um, in Canada or the United States that are going to be the ones that are going to be the ideal litigants that can break that personhood human animal boundary. Mm-hmm. And as you say, uh, it is my belief that even if chimpanzees and elephants, as, and I don't want to diminish how they are suffering in their context, right? Um, but that the strategy will, if it's always dependent on showing that these beings are like humans, those animals that people see as so far removed from humans, like even if you think of insects, right? They're, they're, Never going to get respect through that strategy. They're never going to get protection through the strategy, or it's going to be so long in coming that um, it just kind of makes the current strategy, although understandable in a very real way, given what a chimpanzee in isolation on a roadside zoo is experiencing, or what an elephant like Lucy and at the Edmonton Valley Zoo in isolation and chronic disease and pain is experiencing. Uh, it seems to be just a strategy that will help very limited number of animals comparatively. So what made you decide to go with the concept of legal beingness as opposed to maybe something like, uh, you know, instead of personhood, animalhood, that where, where humans are then incorporated into the animal kingdom? What made you decide to go with uh, legal beingness as the way forward? Because I'm, I'm, from what I'm gathering, you're proposing a third concept, personhood, property, and legal beingness. Is that correct? Yes, well, it, it innovates, the book innovates this new category, right? This is, so beingness is not um, recognized now in uh, Canadian law, right? So it would, what motivated me to kind of theorize this new and advocate that the law should take up something like this for animals is approaching the, the area of animal law from a critical, theoretically informed perspective, one that um, heavily relies on feminist theory, post-colonial theory. Right now, animal law strategies and the whole kind of world of animal law is um, influenced by what most of, right, like our Canadian discourse is influenced by, would be liberalism. And so um, I'm trying to suggest a, a, a new uh, subjectivity for animals that comes out of the insights of um, difference-respecting theories. So theories where people, like where beings get to count, not because they're similar to the, those who already count um, and we see a more value in this of legal, worthy of legal protection, but because we want to value the differences that they embody. And um, so whereas we can under, so to compare the two concepts briefly, if we understand personhood as marked by an attention to, you know, rationality, putting a premium on the ability to reason, as being marked by um, values of uh, autonomy, autonomy understood as uh, not uh, facilitated by the relationships that they're in, but something that we possess individually and we made by ourselves. And we can see um, beingness as uh, uh, a subjectivity 
but doesn't ask about the rational person, like personhood does. So it doesn't imagine this rational, self-maximizing, autonomous person. Beingness, instead, when we, we hear the word beingness, what should we think about? We should think about a vulnerable being, a, a vulnerable being made vulnerable by the relationships in which it is placed, in which we are placed, and a being that is embodied and thus vulnerable because of the pain and suffering that that being can entail. So what I do with my concept of beingness is to say that relationality, vulnerability, and embodiment are three core attributes of a legal being. And so when we, when the law is then asked in various disputes or you know, litigation that comes forward, to think about what does, what does this particular legal being need um, because of its vulnerability or their uh, relationality or their embodiment, then that points us to a whole different set of questions than what thinking about the rational actor in a situation, what they, do they need, right? Mm-hmm. And then so, it opens so, up. So, sorry. <laughs> um, so it's no longer about the, you know, there's that famous quote. Um, so it's no longer about whether the animals can think or reason. That's not really a matter of whether they should or should not be considered legal subjects. It's a matter of are they embodied? Can they feel... Uh, what is happening to them, and should this be considered a legal problem? Yes, and recognizing the vulnerability. Yes, so that exactly. So that that those are the features that indicate to us um, who the law should care about, and and also indicate to us the features we need to look at to attend to to make sure that a being is protected. Okay, I'm with you. And would would legal beingness extend? Would you envision in, in the future where legal beingness is a concept that's used, would this then extend, you know, you wouldn't have humans and corporations sitting in personhood boxes. You would see legal beingness being extended uh, to humans as well? It could be. So in the in, in the book I say, like I'm not saying this has to be reserved for animals, and then I take up the issue, the drawing the line issue about, you know, like what about plants and other types of non-humans, more so in one chapter. Um, but it could be sent to humans, but I don't uh, discuss that at length in the book. But, but so many feminists and others have made the argument that personhood is not an, even a, a friendly concept for most humans because of its original originating um, kind of mold in an exclusive history. And so the extensionist idea doesn't really work very well and so why not just change this type of concept um to something that does so uh it could be applied to humans as well yes but of course all of this would be a sea change in what is currently going on at least in the um uh colonial legal order Canadian law, right in terms of how we understand human animal relations this is both a, i think a, a legal concept that could be useful but also one for animal studies scholars who are trying to think through uh, you know, how to think about animal subjectivity, uh, like epistemologically thinking of animals as beings instead of property will take scholars in different, uh, different, different ways and different avenues of thought. Right. Um, yes. I hope so. Yeah. So do you have a quote that you would like to read? Normally at this part of the episode, the episode i i offer people an opportunity to read a quote from a book or an excerpt from their own book uh, that kind of sums up what their arguments are and what they'd like to convey oh my goodness well on that i would just say that when i heard um 
Joaquin Phoenix's Oscar speech, accepting <laughs> for best actor. I'm not sure who helped him with that, but I, I'm pretty sure he must have received some type of help. Um, that just, for, I felt in the moment that he just encapsulated like the, the arguments I've been making in the scholarly context for, for years. And now that was um, you know, communicated to hopefully more than a billion people worldwide. So that was definitely um, an uplifting moment. Uh, so I'd recommend that speech to anyone. Um, also, but I'll just bring up the quote I started my um, mat manuscript off with. Actually, the one of the quotes is uh, his, but the first quote is from Karen Joy Fowler. She is a novelist, American novelist, and her um, several books and her book, uh, We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves, is a novel I would recommend just to anyone and I feel and uh, that it really um, uh, gets at this idea of how to think of animals in a in a different way um, and even though it, it does center around what we would say is a, a humanized animal but um, this is the quote I started that starts off my my uh, monograph uh, and this is Karen Joy Fowler from we are all completely beside ourselves it seems to me that every time we humans announce that here is the thing that makes us unique, our featherless bipedality, our tool using, our language, some other species comes along to snatch it away. If modesty were a human trait, we have learned to be more cautious over the years. And I really think that that sums up the history of Western thought about animals. Um, you know, like the, like the dominant trends in Western thought, of course, even Western traditions aren't homogenous, um, that there's this, this a belief that has been entrenched now about human exceptionalism, and uh, which really needs to be critically interrogated, uh, if not for people caring about animals, but caring about so many other things, whether it's right, zoonotic diseases and their effects, whether it's climate change and its effects or other devastating anthropogenic action. Um, the human exceptionalism that has grown in Western culture and now is embedded in uh, dominant legal systems the world over is really at um, kind of the root of this problem. Right? And so that's what beingness, beingness is there to say, when we think of human exceptionalism, it's just not about disrupting the human. It's about disrupting what the human is, is, is purported to be as like which humans or to be exceptional. It's a certain idea of the human, which is informed by ideas of gender and race and class and ability. Um, and so that's why I really like this quote, because it reminds us of the human exceptionalism, but then it also reminds us that it comes out of a, a, a specific history that, what I'm, of, that I'm trying to point at and get animal folks to look at when we think of what is the strategy to go forward. That's so important because, uh, you know, sometimes we speak in, in speaking about animal rights and animal needs, we, we, we reify the, the division between human and animal, um, but not all humans have had, uh, you know, equally oppressive or enabling relationships with animals. Uh, and that, that made me, when you're talking now about Western thoughts and the Western ideas of human, um, you know, I think 
you've written a little bit about what you think indigenous knowledges could potentially provide in terms of thinking through some of these uh, ideas. Do you want to possibly mention something about that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So you know, there, it's important to remember that there are legal orders, for example, let's say um, indigenous uh, laws in the Canadian context that have a different conceptualization of human relations and aren't um, uh, uh, like as heavily reliant on claims about human exceptionalism, aren't reliant um, on such claims at all. That, of course, is not to say that um, animals aren't uh, seen as resources or instrumentalized uh, for various purposes uh, within those laws. And so I've also written about that and all the kind of nuances of the uh, complexities of those debates. But the general issue is, though, that we have today, right here in like, what we think of Canada, uh, uh, legal traditions, legal orders, laws that can be guides to Canadian law, like our dominant Canadian legal system as to how to have a better relationship with animals, how to ha- how to recognize multi-species um, nature of our communities, and how to think of a concept even like of animal personhood, which is a concept in um, as uh, scholars have shown, in various indigenous legal orders and and non-Western orders uh, globally. Um, That idea of personhood in that context is different than, obviously, the personhood in the Canadian legal, um, the dominant colonial understanding. Um, But the point there is that we can think of a new subjectivity that is not property, that just doesn't commodify animals and sees them as things. And so what I've written about is to the extent that there are multiple facets of society, including dominant institutions like our, our governments, federal government, provincial government, our um, law schools, our our law societies, even um, non-legal institutions that are interested in the um, uh, spirit and actuality reconciliation with indigenous peoples, then rethinking human-animal relations, human-non-human relations in total has to be a part of that, and that should come into legal understanding. (laughs) Um, I can hear your little one there she's calling you <laughs> he doesn't understand because he can't obviously hear the, you but he just heard me talking to the computer Hi. <laughs> that was quite that was very cute um, um, yes so I, I I appreciate there are many different ways in, of thinking and collapsing and, and disrupting the idea of human exceptionalism and uh from what we've spoken about today, personhood and, and your idea of personhood is that maybe there are different ways to achieve that more effectively, like legal beingness. Um, at, thank you. And at this stage, we've, we've been speaking for almost 50 minutes, if you can believe it. Um, I just wanted to say thank you so, so much for... Is, is there anything else before we close? Is there anything else you'd like to add about personhood that you think, you know, scholars who are maybe interested in this would like to learn more about it? Is there anything you'd like to add before we, we close up? Yes, I mean, well, just that, you know, to all the, the animal advocates that are promoting personhood, I completely understand that strategy, given the legal landscape as abysmal as it is for animals. And I don't want to suggest for a moment that they haven't you know, thought out different strategies and um, the pros and cons and aren't aware of the issues we've been talking about, at least part of it in terms of uh, how are the you know 
animalized animals, the farmed animals, the feminized animals ever going to make it under this type of strategy. Um, at the same time, I hope the work I've done has brought more into the conversation um, the insights from critical theory about how we need to complicate uh, how we um, think about animals from these insights, but also how we do legal strategy or how we promote legal strategies. And so that's why I've, I've tried to kind of theorize this new concept of beingness and show in different contexts why I think it would be practically viable in terms of our legal strategy. Fantastic. And if, if people want to, uh, you said your book is forthcoming. When when are you expecting it to be released? It's, yes, it's expected to be released by University of Toronto Press in the fall. Of 2020. Yeah. And um, if people want to learn more about your work and the type of uh, research that you're doing, where can they find out more about you? Uh, they can go to my website uh, at the University of Victoria Faculty of Law. I'll be um, soon linking another more detailed <laughs> or fulsome website. Um, I'd also invite them to check out the Animals in Society Research Initiative. It's a new initiative at the University of Victoria that I'm directing. And um, it shows the activities we've been able to do and has a lot of interesting links. And uh, that is on... University of Victoria's online academic community, but if you just put into your search engine, Animal Society Research Initiative, University of Victoria, it should come up. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time, and thank you for all of the work you do. Uh, and the, the, yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. It's my pleasure, Claudia. And can I also say, I'm not sure if everyone's aware of it. I just only recently became aware, but um, there's, a, there's a search engine called uh, ecosia.org and every time you use it um, it takes the revenue to plant a tree oh how, how do you spell that ecosia.org and it's a search engine so if you search using that they'll plant a tree yes yeah, so they're not-for-profit and as I understand and so they take their advertising revenue to plant trees that's amazing so thank you so much for sharing that, that. Advertising. yes Great. I will go and search for your book using that now. <laughs> okay, great. All right. Okay, <laughs> thank you for your work. It's so exciting. All right. Lovely to talk to you. A big thank you to Gordon Clark for doing the bed music, Jeremy John for the logo, and a huge thank you to Animals in Philosophy, Politics, Law, and Ethics. Apple for sponsoring this podcast. This is The Animal Turn with me, Claudia Hertzenfelder.